pray real quick. God, I just want to thank you that you've provided a way up to this point that we can even have this room in the back. Uh, that it's incomplete, it's not quite there, but that, that for the first time since we have been a church, we're getting to use this back room of this building. And that is, that is so cool to see that, that this place which, which has never been finished or beautiful or perfect or any of those things in the way that we would tend to think of perfection or what our building should look like or what a church building looks like in our, in our lives. But, but this building has been so used by you and you've continued to provide new ways for us to use this to bring glory to you. So God, I just thank you that, that we're using this room and that we have people that are excited to work with kids and, and love them and teach them about who you are. And I pray that you would be getting a hold of the kids' hearts that are here this morning and the kids' hearts that you're going to eventually be bringing here um, so that they can know you and love you more and, and, and grow and be changed. So thank you for that room. God, this morning as we're, as we're looking through your word, I've said this to a couple people this morning. I have lots of notes, but I don't feel like I have a sermon. I don't feel like... I don't feel like it's more than just an outline at this point. So God, I'm going to be relying on you this morning to teach me and to teach us what it is that you would have us learn from this passage. Um, so God, I just pray that you would move, you would be at work in all of our hearts to show us where we are weak and where we need to be changed. Um, God, just make much of yourself this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was informed just before I came up here that apparently my child wiped a booger on my shirt. So that's not, that's not me. So if it, if, if it distracts you, don't think it's my fault. I mean, I guess in the end it's my fault because I probably taught her to wipe boogers somewhere. But So I'll take credit, I guess. So you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. Uh, just like last week, we're going to do a fairly large chunk. We're going to do the rest of this chapter that we left off with last week. So we're going to be picking up in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 22. Um, similar to where we were last week, we're still in the last week of Jesus' life. We're still in Jerusalem. We're still, we're still seeing Jesus coming into the city to teach and to heal and to... Um, in the last couple of weeks and moving into this week, can still be confronted by the Pharisees over things that, that they're still trying to trap him in some sort of controversy so that they can silence him. Because they, we talked about it last week, they don't like the message that he's bringing because the message that he's bringing is very challenging to their position, is very challenging to their way of, you know, making much of themselves, making themselves important, making themselves wealthy, all of these sorts of things. And all these things that Jesus is doing are really directly in opposition to who they are. And we're going to continue to see this happen this week. We're going to continue to see different groups of people coming up to Jesus, trying to be the ones to take him down. Uh, I'm not saying that people are trying to take me down, but I kind of I kind of got a small glimpse of how Jesus feels. This last week I was at a conference and I ended up having to do this like short presentation and then Q&A session thing about some stuff that I do at work. And 
it's really interesting when all of a sudden you're like, so does anybody have any questions? And then it's just like, hand, hand, hand. And you don't know where the questions are coming from. You don't know what the questions are going to be. And you just have to hope that you know your stuff well enough that you have a good answer for people. Um, and I kind of, and I was thinking about that. It's like, man, it'd be nice to be like all-knowing and all-seeing in God for when these questions are coming. Because now he's like, yeah, I'm already prepared for that. And we're going to see just how prepared for some of these questions are that Jesus has coming for him this week. Because again, it's still going, to, it's just going to be continually. There's this rapid fire, people coming up, trying to catch Jesus in some sort of sin. Uh, so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to start with verses 15 through 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Right? That says everything for the rest of the chapter. That's what's at stake. That's what they're trying to do here. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So just as we're getting started here, uh, this is kind of beginning, like I said, just kind of, this is like the final like, public showdown that Jesus is going to have with these guys. The next time he's going to start interacting with the Pharisees and stuff directly at the end of, of, of this week and next week's interaction, because this is all kind of one big day here. Um, this is going to be the last time in public they're going to have this back and forth. After this, they're going to start working in secret, um, trying, to, trying to silence Jesus. Um, so this is it. And so they send their disciples, and it says the Herodians. So these are the people that, that worked under the Roman government's designated leader's authority in this sense. So they, you kind of have some, some guys who work under the guys that char in charge of the church and some guys under the people in charge of the local government. And they send these people who maybe Jesus wouldn't recognize as representatives of his opposition. So they send these younger guys to go up and ask these questions. And I, and, and I love the way they come up to him because they start by buttering him up, right? They start by saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. They're like, we believe everything you say. We just have this one little question that we just can't really understand, right? So they're really trying to hit him with this, we really like you. Maybe get Jesus to drop his guard a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to give away any tricks, but that works on me. So, like, if you ever come up and say something nice to me, I, like, like, that's my love language. Like, words of affirmation is my thing. So if you say that nice things, if you came up and said, you teach so well, you do such great things, can you do this for me? I'll be like, absolutely. But it's not going to work on Jesus, because it says he sees right through the things that they're saying. Right? So the question that they ask is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so... And we saw this last week. They're trying to set him up with an either-or statement, a yes or no. It is lawful or it is not lawful. And in doing so, he's either going to alienate himself from the great crowds that are really excited that he's there by saying, you guys need to pay your taxes. And they don't like Rome. They don't like Caesar. They don't like that they're in subjugation to this empire. So if Jesus is going to come out and say, yeah, totally, you guys should pay your taxes, their hope is that they're going to revolt and turn on Jesus. But then if he says, no, 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 you don't have to pay that. 
Like, like you're the people of God. You don't have to worry about this authority that's over you. Then he's going to be in trouble with the Roman government, and then the Roman government's going to be the one who's going to silence him for them. Right? So you see the, the kind of situation they're trying to set up for Jesus. And so they come up and they say, so, so what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to pay this tax that's being enforced on us? Because here's the thing. Um, they were under heavy taxation during the, during the Roman occupation. Like Rome funded itself by basically taxing to death the countries and the people groups that it would take over. Right? This was how they continued to kind of line their pockets. And so it, it probably was that most people in this Jewish society, when you take Roman tax and temple taxes, and we talked a little bit about what temple taxes were, how they were affecting people last week, somebody was probably losing half their income to taxes at this point. Like 45 to 50% of their income, they never got to see. It went straight to the government or to the church leaders. So, so this was a thing that people would not be happy with. Like, to be told, no, pay your taxes would be really a hard, a hard ask for the people. And so they asked this question to Jesus, hoping that he's going to alienate himself from his people. But Jesus sees right through it, right? And he says, he immediately calls them out for who they are. You are hypocrites, right? You are representing somebody who's coming to me, believing in who I am and the things that I'm saying. But really, I know what you're trying to do here. I see right through this. And so he asks them, bring me a coin. He says, this is Caesar on this coin, he is in authority over you at this time, right? Give him what's his. And give to God what's God's. Now, now, here's the thing that we don't really see said directly in here, but we can gather from the rest of Scripture. And I could ask this question, and I would hope that we could all get this answer right. What belongs to God? Everything. Ourselves. Everything. Yeah. Caesar is God's creation. The, the coins that bear Caesar's inscription and his likeness are a part of the creation that God is in authority over. All of this is God's. And so what God is saying, when he's saying give to God what is God's, he's saying everything is God's. Give him your everything. And we're going to see this said more clearly here in just a few minutes when we read a little bit further. But what Jesus is saying is this authority that's over you is God's authority that he's put over you. He's put this person in charge of you for this time. He has put this person in authority over so much of the world for this time. I think this is a really good message for us as the church, particularly the church in America right now, where there's so much tension with regard to politics around us. Like, everybody has a strong opinion about, about our president at this point. Everybody. Nobody is in the middle on this. And here's the thing that I think we need to be reminded of. Donald Trump is our president because God wants Donald Trump to be our president. And we don't flinch at that. We don't, we don't hide ourselves. We don't get angry and riled up at that. Maybe, maybe you love that Donald Trump is our president right now. Maybe you hate that Donald Trump is our president right now on the inside. But I can tell you, God loves that Donald Trump is our president right now. Because God's will was played out when Donald Trump became our president, and God loves when his will is accomplished. So even if you disagree, you can disagree with some things that our president says. Maybe you disagree with this president. Maybe you disagree with the last president. Maybe you've never agreed with any president in your lifetime. 
Maybe you're just that guy. But we should give to the authority that's been placed over us what is due to the authority that's been placed over us. One of those things being our respect. One of those things, in a sense, being our allegiance. Not in the, I'm going to follow you into sin if you lead me that way sort of allegiance. But in the sort of, think back to, okay, think back to the list of names of the guys that Jesus called to be around him. A lot of these guys we don't know a whole lot about. Like when I say Peter, everybody knows who Peter is. James and John, we know, we know these names. There's this other guy named Simon that was one of his people. Do you remember what Simon's title was? Does anybody remember? They called him Simon the Zealot. Does anybody know what a zealot is? He was basically like a guerrilla warfare like terrorist guy. Like he was a Rome's in charge, let's get together a bunch of guys, we're going to go overthrow Rome. They were so zealous for wanting to overthrow Rome that they were going to do whatever it took to overthrow this evil government that was over them. And this is a guy that Jesus called to him and now is following Jesus as Jesus is saying, no, no, give, give Caesar what's his. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen because this is the guy that God has over you for this time. No, he's not got a heart that's for me. No, he's not King David. But I think these kinds of questions, especially now when tensions are so high with, do you really love the things that our government's doing? Do you not love the things that our government's doing? I think we have to realize that those people are in authority because God wants them there. And as such, we should behave as a church who believes that God wants them there. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't destroy our witness, undermine our credibility as followers of God. If we're people that believe God is in charge of all of these things and he's sovereign over all these things and he's telling us to be good citizens even under an evil empire. Like, I don't care. If we elected Darth Vader, I just said evil empire and I went there. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Whoever it may be, we are under them because God wants us to be under them and we should live as good citizens because God has placed them in authority over us. Because they're God's too, right? Because so, that's the thing he comes back to. Like, give Caesar what's his, give God what's God's. And he's trying to say, all of this is his anyways, so why do we care if we give a little bit more, if we have to give all these taxes away? Like, like just do what the law is. I mean, when it comes to election stuff, I've said this before. Vote the way you feel compelled you're supposed to vote. Like, we should still vote. We shouldn't just be like, God's going to pick and that's it. Like, still vote. Still be concerned, still, still fight for those who need to be fought for, who maybe don't have a voice. But don't become so zealous for the opinions that you have about the way government should be or the things that people in authority should be doing that we undermine what God is doing through the church. Let's go ahead and move on. Chapter 22, we'll pick up in verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. Bad luck in that family. 
After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that it was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. A couple of things. It says right off the bat that the Sadducees came up to him and to make sure to point out that they don't believe in the resurrection. So their question, again, is already revealing what their intent is. Because they come up asking him a question about the resurrection. A hypothetical question about what it's going to be like when we're resurrected. Though they don't believe in resurrection. What that means is they don't just, it's not they don't believe that people come back to life, which that's hard enough to believe, but they don't believe that there's any form of afterlife. And that's because they so held themselves to only studying the first five books of the Bible in the Pentateuch. And that their, their opinion was, there's no real talk of the resurrection in here, so we don't think that it actually happens. It's just, it's just law and be good. Like that, That's kind of where their belief system was, was built. It, they, don't, they don't consider any of the rest of Scripture as helpful to them. But, but because they don't believe in resurrection, they come up with this hypothetical question. Already they've revealed what their intent is. They're still just trying to get Jesus to say something that's going to alienate him from the crowds around him. Right? They're, trying, they're trying to stump him with some sort of question, but it's, it's, it's based in a belief that they don't even have. Like it's not even, they're obviously not trying to come up for clarification on this actual issue that they struggle with because they don't think that this is a problem anyways because they think once each of these people have died, that's it. There's nothing more. So why would it matter who they were married to in heaven? Their very question reveals how hypocritical they are even in their approach to him. And his response to them is that not only are they asking a poorly constructed question, um, but that their poorly constructed question is rooted in their lack of knowledge of the Scripture. Right? And he calls them, that, calls them out for that right away. You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's like, you don't even know God well enough. You don't even know the Scriptures well enough to even begin to ask that question. Like, you don't understand what you're asking because you don't understand the Bible. Because if you understood the Bible, you would understand this. He's saying... And I think this is worth mentioning. I don't think that what he's saying is, if you're married when you get to heaven, you don't recognize that person for who they are, that they were your spouse. This one always makes my wife cry whenever she reads this one, which I guess makes me feel good. But like, he's like, they're more like the angels in heaven. Not, not when we die, we become angels. Not when we die, we sprout wings and halos and these sorts of things. Like, like the end of Roger Rabbit when all those guys are laughing so hard they're laughing themselves to death and they immediately turn into angels. Anybody? Thank you. A couple of, pe a couple of head nods. Like, like that's not what happens. He's not saying that you become angels. He's saying like angels, your, your, your whole purpose for being after death is that you get to be with God and you're going to be worshiping him and celebrating him. Not you're not going to have, you're not going to not, you're not going to forget the relationships that you had before. I don't think that's the case. But he's saying, you're going to have this purpose as the people of God after death, which is, which is, 
which the Sadducees didn't even believe in. So, again, his answer isn't going to be all that meaningful to them because they don't really understand who God is. So what he's saying is, you're basically taking too narrow a view of what's at stake here, right? The, the question is rooted in a very small field of view, like you're saying, like the whole, point of, the whole point of marriage was only ever so that you could have children to carry on your family line. So this guy died, the next guy married, this guy died, the next guy married. And they're like, but what's the solution in heaven? He's saying, you're looking at this in far too narrow a way. You're thinking only about about personal lineage and family names and all of this. The bigger picture has always been for marriage, that marriage is to represent our relationship with Christ, which we're going to get to, to actually celebrate our relationship with Christ face-to-face in the afterlife. That's what's really coming. That's the bigger picture. And when you look at it too closely, when you have too narrow a field of view, you can't really understand why all of these institutions even existed to begin with. If the whole point of marriage was just carrying on a family name, then you've missed the whole point. We need a wider field of view. Um, this, will, this makes sense to me. Like when I thought, this makes sense to me because I do camera stuff all the time. So if you do camera stuff, this might make sense to you. If you have a zoom lens, it's really easy when you zoom all the way out to your longest focal length. And I, and I do this all the time because it's, I think it's prettier in the, in the end image. You can make like certain things in focus, but everything else can get blurry. The longer the focal length you have, the easier it is to keep a really thin field of view. Does this make sense to anybody other than my sister? Maybe not? Okay. So, uh, but when you zoom all the way out, when you go out to the widest focal length and you're taking in so much more, it's really easy to get everything in in your view perfectly clear. I think this is a cool metaphor for kind of what we can get from this. Because Jesus is saying, if you have a bigger picture of what all of these things are for, you're going to have a clearer understanding of who God is and what our relationship is like with him. If you're only zooming in and getting really close and tight on this one understanding of what marriage could be in this example, you're missing all of these great things that you could be seeing. If you'd you'd zoom out, if you take a wider look, everything's going to make more sense. Everything's going to become more clear. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? I think that was helpful for me because so often I I like to zoom way in and just get focused on this one thing and then I realize I've missed kind of the beauty of everything that was around that one thing that I was focused on. It's so easy to just get too, too tight, too zoomed in and we kind of miss the point of what's being said there. And so Jesus is saying, you've, you've missed the point, you need a wider field of view. And then he even goes on to, to challenge their core belief, like their core belief that there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection, there's nothing. Like you die, game over, the end. And, and what's great is, their whole idea is, we don't believe in the afterlife because we only believe in the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus gives them an argument from the Pentateuch. He gives them an argument from what it is that they hold on to. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, it's like, I've answered your question. Your question was dumb. I've answered it. Bad question. Here's the answer. Oh, and by the way, let me just go at you for your core belief. You don't think there's a resurrection because you only study the first five books of the Bible? Well, haven't you read what it says to you by God? This is something you claim to believe is what he's saying. You believe these books. Listen to this. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Right? Those are all present tense. 
So when God introduces himself to Moses, you know, their most important person in history, when he introduces himself to Moses, he says this in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. If they were dead and that was it, he would have said, don't you know me? I was the God of those guys. But no, his whole point is, I am currently still their God. They are currently still in existence. And it should be so plain to see right in front of you is what Jesus is saying to these Sadducees. And the crowds around it heard it and they're like, and it's like that light bulb moment, like mind blown. Whoa, I never thought of it that way. And so now all these Sadducees not only had their question kind of rejected, spun around on its head and answered for them, but now he's just challenged basically their whole identity and said, you guys have missed the point on all of this because you've been too focused on this one thing. And even in your focus too much on this one thing, you've missed the truth that was right in front of you the whole time. It's a thing that we should be concerned about and we should try to avoid ourselves by getting so maybe locked in on one truth and saying, this truth is the most important thing. Like whatever, whatever your thing is, whatever your topic is, whatever your subject is, whatever the thing that you most feel, uh, this is a big deal to me. And maybe we need to do a better job of saying, I need to step back and see where this thing plays in with the whole of Scripture. And where do I need to maybe not be so honed in on saying, this is, this is everything. And where, where, where maybe am I missing Scripture because I'm so, like, lasered in on this one thing. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, I love that. Just, just as an aside, oh man, he beat them? Okay, let's try again. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they said, let's bring in a lawyer who can actually construct us a well-worded question, right? Because obviously the Sadducees couldn't put together a decent question that would, that would entertain Jesus. So maybe if we bring in a lawyer who can, and, and if you've ever like been in a conversation with a lawyer about well, how can we ask this question. It's like we need to, okay, we can't put the comma there because if we put the comma there, then that could be misinterpreted. You know, like they're getting super techie with this question. They're like, we want to get this question right. We want to make sure that this is the one that we can trap him with. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And again, but this question is meant to try to trip Jesus up. They're hoping that he's going to get it wrong so that they can say, see, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they ask him this question, what is the most and greatest commandment out there. And honestly, the answer he gives them is the answer they were looking for. He gives them the correct answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he said, and then here's another one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, like love God and love people. These are the things that you've pro we've probably all heard a handful of sermons preached on. But here's the thing. They were probably misinterpreting his answer as a checklist, right? Heart, soul, mind, right? They were probably thinking, this is 
oh, so I have to love him with all my heart. I've got to love him with all my soul. i got to love him with all my mind. So I've got to know things. I've got to, like, mean in my heart that I love him, right? This is a question that we ask each other, that we ask people. Do you love God? Do you mean it in your heart? Do you know that you mean it? Because you have to mean it in your heart in this way. Uh, do you mean it with your soul? Like, like, they're thinking, okay, so these are just kind of checkboxes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But kind of like we said before, when we were talking about giving to God what is God's, what this verse is really getting at is it's not a checklist. Love him with your heart, love him with your mind, love him with your strength. You know, all these things that we say, it's love him with all of you. Everything about you should be for him. It's a different kind of love. It's not a, I have this affection for God. Like, he's pretty cool. Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing. Right? This is like, everything within you is for him. Everything about who you are passionately wants to know and be with him. And loving your neighbor as yourself is more than just tolerance. It's a higher call. It's not just. It's not just like, I love this person, so I don't punch them in their face when they have, come up and talk to me. I let. I'm. I'm nice to them. It's not being nice. It's not just being kind. Uh, I saw. I saw this description of love, and I liked this. It was in one of the commentaries I was studying this week. It defined love as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person, in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purpose. That's really wordy, so I'm going to read it again, but I think it's really helpful. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purpose. And I love that ending part because it can mean any type of relationship you may have. It could be your relationship with your mom. It could be your relationship with a spouse. It can be a relationship with a coworker. It's whatever God's intended purpose is for this relationship. You love them so much despite the fact that they are sinners, despite the fact that they are broken, despite the fact that it's going to be tough at times, that you want them to get to the point in this relationship that God intends for you that you are pushing them more toward Christ and that you are being pushed more toward Christ because of the relationship that you have. It may be that they are not a very lovable person. It may be that they are not saved, but you are meant to grow in some way out of the relationship that you have with this person. That's what God is actually calling us to when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because, because it's not just, I'm going to go pity this person and hopefully build them up. It's, God's got something in this for me too with the way that I relate to this person. So it may not be easy, but God has an intended purpose for that relationship. And we are, and I love this, unconditionally committed. So even if it's hard, even if there are times that you want to bang your head against a wall, we're in it because there's something that God has for them and he's going to grow you through it somehow as well. This is the calling that Jesus is actually saying we're being called to. Give God our everything and love people in such a way that we are trying to bring them closer to God and be changed ourselves. Not just, hey, love God, love people. Like, it's not, it's not so simple when you hear it read that way. 
it's a much higher calling than we think. Last set of verses here, picking up in verse 41. Now Jesus is going to kind of go on the offensive. He's, he's kind of done taking questions from them. And now he's going to say, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Like, he kind of, we're done here. Like, this is it. I got one question for you. you. All this, all of what you are is built around waiting for the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? And they're like, he's going to be the son of David. We know this. The Bible says this. He's like, yeah, well, then why was David so submissive to his son? Because if you think culturally, that would not be a thing. Right? You're older. You're an authority. Your children respect you, and it works its way down and that way. So, and, and I love that he's saying, David, in the spirit, right? This is, this is, if you wanted to get into a longer conversation about Scripture being divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, New Testament, these words being the exact words that God wanted written down and not just being people writing it down kind of based on their opinions. He says, David, in the spirit, like being moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words down. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Uh, when we did our study in Hebrews, there's a really long breakdown of how this verse actually interacts with the church today. Because the whole point is, they were looking for a king. They have been continually looking for Jesus to be their actual king. And yet, once again, he's already reminded them this day, I'm not here to be your political king. Caesar's still in authority. Support Support the things that Caesar says. Not support, but like respect those things. Live as citizens under Rome. Because I'm not here to become your new king right now. That's not my purpose. So they're all this time thinking, son of David, he's going to come be a king. They don't think of the son of David coming in the way that Jesus came. Humble. Here to die as a sacrifice for them. But yet, David understood this. It will be his heir, but his heir is somebody that he is in submission to. It's somebody that is in authority over him. Because he says in that verse, the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, the Messiah. And the Pharisees didn't have any problem interpreting that verse talking about the Messiah, especially when you follow it up. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This was going to be the conquering Messiah. So they had no problem understanding that this verse was talking about the Messiah that's going to come and conquer sin and death and make everything great. They just misinterpreted what the enemies were that he was defeating. They were thinking Rome. They weren't thinking the enemy being sin and the enemy being Satan. And it being, again, a bigger perspective than just this little thing that was in front of them at the time, being this Roman occupation. So the king that they all looked back to, and remember how good it was when David was the king? That was great. This king that they looked back to so highly is calling his descendant Lord. And so Jesus is kind of making his final appeal to the Pharisees in public 
to understand who he is. Right? He's saying, this is what he was talking about. I'm right here. It's just not the way you had thought it would be. It's just not the one you thought it would be. It doesn't look the way you understood it would be. But David understood. The whole Old Testament was pointing to this version of the Messiah. They've just continually missed the mark on what it is that he was trying to say. They keep not getting it. So, what are we as the church supposed to get from that interaction? Because this is a challenge to these religious people who were around him, right? This is Jesus saying, you guys have missed the point, and I want you to understand one more time. Like, I love how, even though they're trying to undermine him, it's, it's as though he still so loves them that he wants to, them to get this. He's like, I'm going to say it again. I've been saying it over and over and over again. I'm, the Messiah you're looking for is not the Messiah that is in front of you, right? Get this. Know this. Know me for who I am. Understand this truth that I am presenting. And so what are we as the church supposed to do with that? Maybe you have a picture of who Jesus is in your mind. Maybe you have a picture of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Maybe you have a picture of what salvation actually is. And maybe, hopefully not for most of us, but maybe your picture is wrong. Maybe you think you've got this all figured out. You think you know Jesus. You think you know the Bible. You think you know some truth. But maybe you don't. Maybe you have too narrow a field of view on a couple of things, and you think that the Bible's all about you, or that you think it's all about doing X, Y, and Z to please God, and then you get to get into heaven. Maybe you don't fully understand what it means to give your heart fully over to God and to give, so, so to go back and to give to God what is his, which is everything, all of you. Everything about you, we hold nothing back. There's nothing about us that gets us into heaven. We rely completely on him. Maybe, maybe that hasn't really taken root in your heart yet. Maybe you don't fully understand what that is. Maybe it's been right in front of you. Maybe you've heard us reading all these things and you think, oh yeah, I get it. But the more you discuss it with people, the more you find, man, I keep reading this one way and people keep telling me it's something else. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't. Maybe this is the sort of thing where, where we see, but we see Jesus saying, I just want you to know who I am and I want you to accept me as I have actually revealed myself, not this picture that you have in your mind of what it's supposed to be like. Right? We go, we go to Jesus. We go to Scripture to understand who he is. He's the one who gets to tell us how salvation works. He's the one who gets to show what the Messiah actually looks like. And so maybe, we, maybe we've misinterpreted some core truth in Scripture like the Sadducees did and we've built our whole identity around that whole truth. And we're not actually saved. This is the thing that I'm trying to get us at. Like, these guys, for the last two weeks, that have been coming up and asking Jesus' questions, are, are trying to out a sinner and protect religion. 
right? They really think they've got this all figured out and that Jesus is the enemy. They so are trying to do what they think is right and holy and the things that they're supposed to be accomplishing. But they're not. Right? They're wrong. And, and, they've, and because they've misunderstood all of Scripture up to this point, now they're, they're the ones who ultimately are going to be the ones who kill the Messiah. Which we know, part of God's plan, part of God's means of bringing, apart, bringing around salvation. But they felt like they were right. Maybe there are times that we feel like we are right, but, but our, our rightness is based on some misunderstanding in Scripture. And we've built a whole theology around something. Or we've built a whole way of living, a whole identity based on a lie. That's the thing that I want us to be thinking about. I want us to be thinking... Am I doing the exact same thing that all of these guys who are coming up and challenging Jesus are doing by saying, hey, you say this, but I don't like it, or I don't believe that, or I read it this way. I interpret things this way. If we have lots and lots of those, it may be that we're not actually saved. It may be that we're not actually in him because we're finding there's so many areas in Scripture that we disagree with. I'm not saying we're all, once we get saved, we have this perfectly figured out. I know I don't. But... But especially on these core things where Jesus is saying, you got to give me everything. You got to give me all of who you are. You got to love me with all of your heart, everything about you. That's the calling. That's what salvation is. Let's pray. So, God, I don't know where all of our hearts are right now. I don't know what it is that we're resistant to in Scripture or what it is that. We think we understand something, but, but really it's we're understanding our salvation to maybe be based on something that we're doing or something that we've said or, some, or, or we're saved because we prayed a certain way or we did this certain thing. But God, cause us to have a heart that so desires you, that we so just want to give everything that we have to you and rely on you for everything for our salvation, for our, for our hope, for our motivation to keep going, no matter what it may be that we're facing. God, don't let us be that constant voice of opposition. Don't, don't let us be the kinds of people who are defined by, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Like, like that's, that's the wrong team for us to be playing for. God, and I just pray that you would cause us to so know and love your scripture that we, that we confidently go forward living as your people under the authority that you've put over us, whether we agree with or disagree with, whatever it is, that God, I just pray that we would be a people who so love you with everything in us, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that we're doing. And God, if that's not real in some of our hearts, and God, I'm pretty sure that there are those of us in here who that's not real for. And maybe we mistakenly think we are, we're in, but God, we're not. God, I just pray that you would reveal to us where our heart isn't actually yours. That you would give us a new heart, give us new understanding, give us 
new desires. God, thank you for what you've done to bring us into this family and make us your people. God, I just pray that that you would draw us all closer to you and that our worship now would be a natural, joyful response to what it is that you have worked in our lives. God, make us people that love other people, that recognize your intent for the relationship that we have with other people. Where, where I don't know why you've got this person in my life, but I don't, and I don't really like it, but God, give us, give us a motivation to love them the way we love ourselves. Like, it's so easy to say, I don't want to be around them. I love me too much. I love my time. I love my whatever. But God, fill us with the kind of love that you show to us for the people that you've put in our lives that we're supposed to struggle through life with to bring about some intended purpose that you have. God, make us those kinds of people. In Jesus' name, amen.